Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Tavi Nasir, CEO of Tavi Nasir Leadership. Looking for a keynote speaker or corporate trainer for your next event? Then visit our company's website at TavinaSeer.com to find out how we can help bring invaluable insights and practical tools to help your organization succeed in achieving its goals. And this episode is sponsored by GoCo. Growing your business is exciting, but hiring and onboarding new employees can be overwhelming, not to mention costly if things go wrong. Thankfully, GoCo can help you with this by automating and streamlining everything you have to do to support your growing team. You can customize the GoCo platform to support your existing processes, documents, and policies. And they provide you with a dedicated customer success manager to help you maximize the benefits you derive from their platform. And the best part is, you can try it for free with no credit card needed. So go to goco.io leadership, that's G-O-C-O dot I-O slash leadership to get started. And with that, let's meet my guest for this episode, Dr. Leanne Davey. Even if I didn't like conflict, if I could do uh, 10 minutes, three times a week of a conversation that I was uncomfortable with or was anxious about, that the whole rest of my week would get better. And that was the moment I realized that I could be conflict averse, but that did not mean I had to be conflict avoidant. For most of us, conflict is something we tend to avoid because we view these encounters as being negative and counterproductive. But what if we're getting it wrong? What if conflict can be something that's actually beneficial to our team and that avoiding it is what really has a negative impact on our employees and with it, our leadership? It's an idea I'll explore in this episode with organizational psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Leanne Davey. Leanne is the New York Times best-selling author of You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. She is also a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and an organizational psychology expert for Quartz Magazine. As the co-founder of Three Co's, she advises on business strategy and executive team effectiveness and has worked with executives at companies such as Amazon, Walmart, TD Bank, 3M, and Sony PlayStation. Her latest book is The Good Fight, Use Productive Conflict to Get Your Team and Organization Back on Track, which is what Leanne and I will be discussing in this episode. Hi, Leanne. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tanvir. Thanks. So, Leanne, before we start talking about the book, I do want to bring attention to something here, and that is that you're a fellow Canadian like myself. And obviously, as a proud Canadian, I'm always eager to showcase talented and insightful Canadians like yourself. But I just want to address this from the start in case people wonder why we're talking about hockey, double-doubles at Tim's, or how bad we think winter's going to be this year. You know, just to give our, some context for our listeners to what's going on here. <laughs> I love it. It's so true. How could we have a conversation without that? But uh, we could try, right? We could certainly try. I mean, we could definitely do that. Anyway, I have to say I was so eager to read your book, The Good Fight, because I think all of us can agree that there does seem to be a lot more conflict, specifically interpersonal conflict, that is exemplified by some of the hostility you can experience on social media because of your politics, your beliefs, and so forth. And it was interesting to see how many of the things you write in your book about the nature of conflict reflects why we're seeing or experiencing more of this kind of conflict in our lives. For example, early in your book, you write about an intriguing notion, something you call, and I love this idea, conflict debt. Now, 
all of us can understand financial debt and the negative ramifications that surround that. Now, conflict as a concept already has that negative connotation, and yet you're pairing it with this other word that also stirs negative emotions. So as a starting point for our conversation today, Leanne, I'd love for you to explain this idea of yours of conflict debt. What is it and what are we doing that's causing us to amass this debt? Yeah, thanks so much. I'm I'm glad you like the notion and lots of people have been grabbing onto the language and it helps them visualize what I'm talking about. So if we if we take the notion of conflict that we tend to think of as negative, I'm really hoping that we can get away from thinking of conflict as inherently negative and and start to understand that when we work in organizations, conflict is just a given. It's not good or bad. So we have conflict constantly around different priorities. Uh, Making a trade-off is negotiating a conflict, Um, understanding what's going to be our source of competitive advantage and what we're going to choose to pay attention to. That's a conflict. Um, Dealing with some of the interpersonal issues, for sure, uh, is, is some of the kind of conflict that we think about, but it goes far beyond that. So what happens is the organization sends us this steady stream of things that are in tension with one another, where we have to make tough choices or trade-offs, um, sends us conflicts, essentially. And as human beings, we hate conflict. We are uh, born and wired to dislike conflict with our in-group. And then we're socialized by grandparents and teachers and everyone to think that conflict is impolite or not nice. And so we avoid all these conflicts that are coming at us. And conflict debt is that sum total of all the issues that we need to address to be able to move forward that instead we keep piling up. The the infamous uh, take it offline is is how you know you're getting into conflict debt these days. And so we we carry these issues and our businesses carry them and our teams carry them, these issues that we haven't resolved. And as a result, we start to become constrained. So we don't make choices about priorities, we dilute our resources, uh, we burn out our people, or as individuals, we have a a conflict with somebody else on the team and we don't give them feedback and we have greater and greater resentment and so we get stressed out. So conflict debt is really this idea that conflict is necessary. It's a part of everyday life. And if we don't deal with it, it gets worse and and the interest compounds. Uh, And if we deal with it, pay, pay for our conflict in cash, things get a lot better. Right. And again, I want to focus on this idea of debt and what causes it. Now, you mentioned how there's three specific things that we do that causes us to accumulate this debt. One is that we avoid the issue, right? That there's something we know if this comes brought up in a meeting or in a conversation, it's going to lead to this thing. So let's not talk about it. Let's not address it and so forth. Another option is that we avoid the opposition, and this is something I see a lot in social media, which is often referred to as being that echo chamber, right? We just look for people who are basically going to agree in some way with our idea. Maybe they have a variant in terms of how we should approach it, but fundamentally, they agree with this, so we know we're not going to have much resistance, and so we're not going to have those conflicts we expect from someone saying, no, no, this is not a good idea, I don't agree with this at all. And then the third one is avoiding the friction that we can inevitably have in these conversations. Because so can you elaborate a bit on what are the behaviors that maybe we're doing? I mean, some of them might sound intuitive, but obviously, as I said, 
I've noticed in some conversations, both professionally and personally, where people are doing this, and I don't think it's necessarily always a conscious choice, as it is maybe something, as you mentioned, we've learned behaviorally from our upbringing and from our past experiences. Yeah, so the first one, the uh, we avoid the issue altogether, is uh, what one of my clients referred to as the too hard pile. We just have issues in our organization that we know are undiscussable. Uh, it's a sacred cow. It's just not something that we talk about. And so, you know, why do we keep open this particular uh, factory when we all know that that factory is antiquated and, oh, well, you know, maybe there's, it's the founders. He started that factory 40 years ago and it's near and dear to him. So we just don't talk about it. So, so that first type tends to be the, the too hard pile or the undiscussables. The, the second type, the, the one you were alluding to, uh, happens on social media a lot, the echo chamber is, is usually associated with our desire to go fast. And uh, I need to talk about this issue. I need to make sure that people have approved it. And if I go to the people who I know like the idea, I'll be able to get an approval and get going. And if I solicit feedback from people where they might disagree. It's going to slow me down. I'm not going to get anything done. So often when we're avoiding the opposition, it's because uh, of the perception that it's going to make things a lot slower. Ironically, of course, that if you go around those people and you implement a decision without them, uh, they'll tend to really put the brakes on implementation. So ultimately it'll be slower, but we fool ourselves into thinking that getting a, a rapid approval is actually going to speed things up. Then the third one, behaviorally, how that shows up is that offline comment. So you're in a meeting and you start talking about these issues, but it gets a little hot and it gets a little uncomfortable. And so someone says, uh, let's take that offline. And I heard this hilarious story from my, my friend, Karen Wright, a sort of world famous executive coach. She, she called me, she said, you have to hear this story. It's a great conflict, that story. It was a Toronto-based company with a Japanese parent company. And the chairman came over from, uh, I assume from Tokyo, and was attending one of their meetings. And this was the problem. Things were getting a little bit heated in the meeting and people were particularly worried about having conflict in front of the chairman. And so they kept saying, well, let's take that offline or we'll take that issue offline. And they, they kept taking any issue that was getting a little bit um, uh, precarious and saying they would take it offline. And at the end of the meeting, the chairman said, when is this offline meeting? Because that sounds like the one that I really need to go to. <laughs> And so it was just classic because we had to translate that in Canadian uh, offline means bury it in a deep hole where no one will ever raise it again. Um, so that's one behavioral version of that one. The other one is my, my other least favorite phrase, which is, well, we'll agree to disagree, uh, which is, you know, nothing comes out of we'll agree to disagree. Either we'll decide that this is the action and we'll all commit to it. Or we will, um, you know, we'll keep wrestling with it and keep struggling with it until we come to an answer that everyone's happy with. But this agree to disagree means like, okay, let's just agree to go nowhere. So that's uh, one of the ways that we show that uh, we're in conflict at is the agree to disagree. You know, I love that story because it reminds me of something else that I've encountered in, in my work. And that's often the issue of people saying, you know, we have this tendency to have the meeting after the meeting, 
right? Mm -hmm. So the meeting is more just, we're just going to go through the agenda and then the rest of us are just going to highlight, okay, these are the things that we really need to discuss. And then we're going to go off and have another meeting where we actually decide on those things, but we're doing it amongst those people who we know, well, with these people, it's just easier to get things done and get things moving. Whereas if we, uh, if we do it at the actual meeting, there's just too much of this back and forth. So we don't feel like we're making any progress. Right. But you know, Leanne, when I was reading this idea about the conflict that I really loved it because again, you know, debt is something that we all understand intuitively. It's not something we want to accumulate, but you know, I'm thinking here how there's some listeners who might be thinking, you know what, this is a form of debt I don't mind amassing because it's just not worth getting into these disagreements with coworkers, let alone family and friends. Like I said, in my experience where some people will have that meeting after the meeting. But of course, we all know there's a cost to carrying too much financial debt. But what's the cost we're paying in carrying this conflict debt? So the biggest one, so it, it depends on what kind of conflict debt. If we're talking about the failure to prioritize, um, there is a massive cost associated that within our, with that in our organization. So if you think about the number of, of uh, organizations you can think of that have 30 strategic priorities. I just love when someone says we have 30 strategic priorities. You're like, how do you have 30 priorities? And so if we can't uh, come together, have the difficult discussions and decide what matters most and therefore what matters less, uh, then the cost of that conflict debt is the dilution of resources, probably poor ROI on everything we're doing, and ultimately burnout of our people who are trying to do everything. So, so that's one type of interest we pay. But if you take the very personal version, I remember early in my career having a boss that I had a a very bad relationship with and she was spreading rumors about me in the organization and I didn't know how to advocate for myself or give her feedback about how her comments were making me feel and in that case the stress was building up in me I was at the time my my first daughter was 3 years old and I was coming home with no energy for her. I was not sleeping well, particularly on Sunday nights. I was just dreading the work week. So some of our conflict debt is actually raising our stress levels. And we know as humans, having that long, prolonged uh, stress and cortisol in our system is, is deadly for us. And so conflict debt has these sort of high level organizational productivity related interests that we're paying, but it also has that very personal um, cost to us. So that's one of the reasons I've become so invested in this topic over the last few years is that it's affecting us. It's affecting our economy right down to our families and our communities. So it's, it's a very important issue. Right. And there's obviously an element of one of the reasons why we create conflict debt is this notion of avoiding the opposition we might encounter to our idea, our presentation, our project, what have you. But as you point out in your book, there is a bit of a difference between understanding that there is an aversion to conflict and there's an avoidance <laughs> to wanting to experience conflict. So could you elaborate on what this means and why so many of us have developed this aversion to conflict? What can we do to kind of come to terms with it, too? 
Yeah, so let's start with where it comes from. So biologically, uh, our advantage as animals was in our cooperation. Uh, we became a, an animal that lived in civilization, and that's what, what made us stronger. And so it made a lot of sense that you wanted to get along with your in-group so you didn't get voted out of the cave and eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. So uh, in-group uh, harmony is, a, is an important thing for the human animal. And then if you take our socialization after that, you know, we had grandmothers who kept telling us, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And, you know, we, we got all these kinds of messages that taught us that conflict was, uh, wasn't polite. It wasn't nice. Uh, for me, it wasn't ladylike for sure. So there's a lot that happens in, in how we're socialized. I refer to all those voices whispering in my ear as my itty bitty shitty committee who tell me that conflict is, is a bad thing. So I've had to dismiss them, fire them from their job, get them off my shoulder and not whispering in my ear anymore. And so part of the realization for me was that I was always going to be conflict averse, both because of my wiring and because of all these voices that seemed to be a part of me, uh, but that I didn't have to avoid conflict, even if I didn't like it, that I didn't have to avoid it. And the big place I had the epiphany was actually when I started to focus about five years ago on exercising more. So I had developed a bit of a sore back and uh, I wasn't very resilient standing up all day as a facilitator. And I, I realized that I had pretty weak ab muscles. And so I started going to the gym and, and I described myself as highly fitness averse. And, and five years later, I, I still hate going to the gym. But uh, I go and three times a week, I work on strengthening my abs. So three times a week, I'm still uncomfortable. I still hate abs. But what I started to notice was, wow, the rest of my week was getting a lot better. I could stand in line for long times. I could facilitate all day in heels and that was okay. And so I had this um, epiphany that this was the same thing with conflict was that uh, even if I didn't like conflict, if I could do uh, 10 minutes, three times a week of a conversation that I was uncomfortable with or was anxious about that the whole rest of my week would get better. And that was the moment I realized that I could be conflict averse, but that did not mean I had to be conflict avoidant, just like I could be fitness averse, but I wouldn't be fitness avoidant. Um, and that realization, and so sometimes when I'm talking to audiences, they think I'm telling them that they have to become comfortable with conflict. And I think that's too high a bar. So people seem relieved when I say to them, no, no, I, I don't expect you to ever like it. Uh, and that's not the goal. And it's not something you should hold yourself up to. But instead, uh, what I'm asking is that even though you will uh, still be uncomfortable with it and dislike it, that you do it anyway for the good of your own stress levels, for the good of your trust on your team and for the good of your organization. And, and people seem to like that idea that it's okay to be conflict averse. It's just not okay to be conflict avoidant. Now, Liad, you've made a great case, and you do so in your book, of why we need to not avoid conflict, but learn how to make it something constructive and beneficial. And as we've said, it's not to say we shouldn't avoid conflict, which I admit might sound a bit ironic coming from Canadians, as we both are, <laughs> as we do have that stereotype of always apologizing to people for things, which, you know, I'm pretty much happy with. I like to have that stereotype. That's a good one to have. But a little bit of history lesson that I'd like to point out is that one of our prime ministers, Lester Pearson, won the Nobel Peace Prize for creating what would become the UN Peacekeeping Force. So, a little bit of street cred for us both there, Leanne, that, you yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. we might absolutely. be uh, people who like to apologize, but, you know, we do understand the nature of conflict and how we can use it as a constructive means to move things forward. 
So, Leanne, while conflict is inevitable, and we certainly see a lot of it these <laughs> days, and as you shared, Nuz, I think we've, we've discussed just now, it can be used constructively. You do write in your book that there are ways for us to diffuse workplace conflicts before they rise. In fact, you share a number of strategies and approaches. So building on what we've discussed so far, how can we go about constructively preventing conflicts in a way where we're not, again, going back to that notion, building conflict debt? Yeah, so let's start with the, so I, I give the, um, the proverb in the book of uh, don't wait till you're thirsty to dig a well. And I love that notion and how often in organizations we wait till we need something from someone to kind of spring ourselves on them and spring our priorities on them. And that often creates conflict. So um, the first thing we can do is build relationships and build trust before we need it, before we are in a situation that could be uh, perceived as conflict. And, and the reason for that is our brains are, uh, are wired to interpret even neutral communications through the filter of whether we think someone is a friend or a foe or trustworthy or not trustworthy. So all of these interactions we're having with one another are, are tainted or colored by whether we trust someone or not. So if, if you can spend more time and invest more time in, in showing that you have a connection with somebody in demonstrating your credibility in, in showing that you're reliable and that you have high integrity. If you can go through the steps that I present in the book in chapter four, if you can do those things before um, you are in a situation where uh, that person is interpreting your messages as either friendly or hostile, you're in a really good place. So that's the first place to start. Um, then you can move on to how you interact once you get into an uncomfortable situation or into a conflict. And the secret there uh, is really about, uh, and this is sort of chapter five, this is, you know, how do we actually create a connection with the person? And the number one way we do that is by validating them. And, and often when we interact with people, we invalidate them either by contradicting them directly, like you're full of crap <laughs> or, or, you know, telling them, the exact opposite of what they just said, They're like, no way, that's wrong. And I hear that kind of thing all the time. But we also invalidate people more insidiously by sort of turning our body language uh, away from them or, or dropping our eye contact. So when we invalidate someone, it tends to make them want to resist even harder, to, to fight with us, to, to be heard, to p pull on the other end of the sort of proverbial tug of war. So uh, another thing you can do in the moment is to validate them, to say, okay, here's here's what I think your perspective is, here's what I think you're advocating for, you know, tell me a bit more about that. And essentially what we're trying to do there is to speak the other person's truth before we speak our own. And if we can learn to do that at home, uh, you know, we don't do that at home very well, uh, and, and in our interactions out in the world, uh, we would get in far fewer conflicts if we could start with uh, articulating the, the other person's truth before we start advocating for our own. So back to the sort of Stephen Covey idea of um, strive to understand or seek to understand before striving to be understood. So we can have the proactive version, which is how do we build trust before we need it? And I go through a whole bunch of techniques to do that. And then secondly, when we get in into a situation that's being interpreted as, as a conflict by somebody else, how do we um, stop that urge to contradict them or invalidate them and instead kind of speak their truth, 
ask questions, be curious, and, and that will convert from a situation where you're fighting as adversaries to one where you're problem solving as allies. So those are important things. And then uh, I think you're probably alluding to chapter six, my conflict strategies for nice people, where I go through the six different strategies you can use to turn something that, that would have originally been a conflict into more of a problem solving kind of situation. There's something you said that's just kind of rolling in my mind right now of how you pointed out how we're just hardwired. And I've shared this in a number of my talks. We're just hardwired to process information, what's often referred to as being our animal brain, right? We, yeah. Is this a threat or is this a reward, right? Is this something that's going to benefit us or not? And the sad thing is, unfortunately, our brain's automatic default is to say it's a threat. Like when there's yep. any hint of uncertainty, it's a threat. And I'm so glad you brought up the point about creating a connection with others, because if you think about any type of conflict you're seeing on any issue, on any topic, invariably, we have groups that we've created. We've developed these labels to identify. And once you put that label on someone and define them as being other, well, right now you've already primed your brain to say, well, whatever they say, even if it's a valid point, even if it can be backed up with evidence... We're going to dismiss it or ignore it because they're part of that group who we just by default say whatever they're going to be saying is going to be an attack on us, an attack on how we see things, on how what we need to accomplish. And ergo, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to address it or try to understand what's their reality and maybe how the things that I need to get done is adversely impacting them and maybe how I need to pivot and make an adjustment here. And I love this idea of us making a connection because I think that's really critically a great way for us to diffuse a conflict where we're not using the label to already say, I don't care what you're already going to say because in my head, as you said, I'm going to be coming up with arguments to dismiss it, to invalidate, as you said, whatever you're going to say because you're part of that out group. But creating labels instead that allows us to say, hey, you're part of my in-group makes it easier for us to hear what they have to say. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but that, as you said, it makes it easier for us to understand them before we get consumed with saying, okay, I need you to understand how I want to approach the situation. Yeah, one of the exercises I like to do is that immediately as soon as I start to judge someone as part of my outgroup, because you know, it doesn't matter that I have a PhD in psychology and have written a book about uh, productive conflict. I'm human. I'm human first. And so I do judge people. And so what I try to do is when I catch myself judging somebody as an other, um, you know, somebody who's maybe very uh, right wing or something like that, I, I try and say, what is one way that we are a we instead of a, a they, right? And so, you know, a lot of the people that I see or hear from on Facebook or watching the news, if I look and I honestly say, look, they're, they're also parents, like I'm a parent. And so what we have in common is we will fight ferociously for our children's future, right? And, and that's, that's something we have in common, right? And we may differ in what we think will secure our children's future, but you know, we are very much a we in, in both being parents. Um, so how do you take the person who uh, you're thinking of as an other, as a they, and how do you find ways that you have lots in common? And that could even be someone in your office, right? We, we often do that with people in the office. Oh, they're from sales, right? <laughs> so they're, they're an other, right? But 
um, you know, what's the common ground? What, you know, oh, well, they're maybe they're working on the Acme account and so am I. So they're both really, we're both really invested in, in how well this account goes. Um, so that this othering and, and we know that when exactly as you're saying, when, when we make somebody a they, then our brains naturally interpret information from them as hostile. And if we can find ways without, without trying to fight against the fact that there are they on one dimension, how do we find a bunch of different ways that we're, we're also in the same in-group? Because then our brain is going to naturally look for uh, reasons to support them or look for truth in what they say as opposed to looking for falsehoods. Absolutely. Leanne, your book is really packed with a lot of great insights. And honestly, it got me thinking a lot about how I approach potential conflicts and how to better manage them. And I know there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, hockey season's upon us, right? So, but, but. <laughs> oh, no, don't make me go there. Do not make me. I live in Toronto. That's just mean. That's mean. Yeah. Well, I live in Montreal. So anyone who understands, uh, this could get really heated really fast. We'll have to use some of those uh, conflict strategies. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But seriously, if there's one message or idea you want our listeners to walk away with today about conflict and how to approach these moments, what would it be? Yeah, I think it's back to the conflict debt idea. And uh, that if you let conflict debt build up too much, you'll have to declare bankruptcy. And, and that is, you know, in your marriage, in your relationship with your neighbors, in, in your team at work. Um, and ultimately, you will have so much less stress. You will have a, a much happier, more engaged, more positive experience of your team. And you'll get more done if you sort of pay off those conflicts in in little moments um don't let them build up don't let them become major issues but you know how do i treat conflict as something as a habit as as something i can do a little bit of each day uh, to make sure that i keep my relationships in in a good place and and it's just amazing once you start doing that um how, how you see that wow actually i have a lot less conflict and, and I have a much uh, more comfortable life because I'm willing to confront the things I need to confront as they come up. I love that idea of avoiding bankruptcy by not letting that conflict debt get too low, yeah. too high. I mean, and again, Leanne, you know, I love how one of the themes of your book about how we can address conflict deals, as I said, with empathy in particular, making the effort to understand why people see the things the way they do, what are their values and beliefs, and how we can find that common ground so that we're not looking at conflict as a zero-sum game, but that we're really looking for that common ground that we can both agree on and build on to find a way forward that's mutually beneficial while staying true to what we're trying to achieve. And again, on a personal note, it's always a treat to showcase Canadian wisdom and talent on my show, even if you root for the Toronto Maple Leafs. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not even going to say I'm a Leafs fan. I'm actually not a big hockey person, which so here's two two reasons they're going to revoke my Canadian passport. I I don't I'm not a hockey fan and uh, I'm okay with conflict. So I I could be out soon. Uh, My friends in the U.S., I may be calling you guys soon because I might get I might get kicked out. Hey, remember what the point is here is it's all about finding common ground, right? So (laughs) (laughs) let's hope so. I'll I'll give it to you being uh, from Toronto. Yeah, it's hard. I like like Tim Hortons. I'm I'm good with Tim Hortons. There you go. We got the Tims. So we found our common ground. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really Leanne again, a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on how we can make 
conflict not something that we have to avoid, but really something we can use to find that common ground to move forward. My pleasure, Tamir. Thanks so much. I've been talking to Leanne Davey about her new book, The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and organization back on track. To learn more about Leanne's work, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tamirnasir.com slash lbc. And that's a wrap for this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tamir Nasir Leadership. Looking for a keynote speaker or corporate trainer for your next event? Then visit our company's website at tamirnasir.com to find out how we can bring these kinds of insights to your organization, either at an upcoming conference, leadership retreat, or for a corporate training event. And this episode has been sponsored by GoCo. Hiring and onboarding new employees can be time-consuming and tedious, but thanks to GoCo, you can streamline and automate this process to help your employees hit the ground running. And as it can be customized to your workflow, it will not only help you save time, but avoid any costly mistakes involved in onboarding and employee management. And remember, the best part is you can try GoCo for free with no expiration date and no credit card needed. So go to goco.io slash leadership. That's G-O-C-O dot I-O slash leadership and discover how GoCo can help improve your onboarding and employee management processes. Now, if you have any questions or comments, drop me a note through the contact form on my website. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a colleague, with your team, or with your boss to allow them to reap the benefits as well. And remember, you can find all episodes of this show, as well as links to subscribe on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio on our podcast page at tavernusier.com LBC. So if you want to share this podcast with others, that's a great way to do it. And with that, I'm Tavernusier, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.